Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We are just back from Muhammad Ali's funeral in Louisville. And in the wake of the Orlando shootings, the LGBT hate crime at the gay club Pulse, we really asked ourselves what we would do with this show. And the answer was simple. There was no greater tribute to Muhammad Ali than the outpouring of love we saw in Louisville. And there is no greater tribute that we can do than to push forward the message of this man's life in the midst of all this hate and to bring you the story of his remarkable Louisville send-off. Yeah, the streets are packed in Louisville. People are lining up as far as the eye can see. What they're doing for him today is words can't describe it. The way to honor Muhammad Ali is to be Muhammad Ali today. When people talk about, oh, well, you know, Muhammad Ali is great because he stood up for what he believed in. No, that's not it. He stood for poor people. He stood for underdogs. He stood for peace. He's black. He was the greatest boxer of all time. And he's the hero of Louisville. That's all. <laughs> Muhammad Ali, man, I love you, man. And I, you, you, you go down as the greatest man in the world, ever walked the world, man. So you sleep easy, my brother. All right. Later in the show, I will have some choice words about what I took away from Muhammad Ali's service and why it has so much to teach us, especially in the wake of the Orlando killings. I want to try to walk everybody through the day that was Muhammad Ali's funeral in Louisville. We flew into Louisville the night before the interfaith service, landing close to midnight. We got to our hotel knowing we wouldn't get a lot of sleep. The next morning when we woke up, I knew the day was going to be special because as I was sucking down coffee in the hotel lobby, I bumped into a 78-year-old man, Billy Campbell from Scotland, who had made the pilgrimage just to say goodbye. And then we were on our way to Democracy Now! From Washington, D.C., this is Democracy Now! Upon arriving at the studio, I saw that my co-panelist was going to be Dahlia Mugahed, who helped lead the Muslim funeral services the night before. Muhammad Ali, the people's champ. We gather in Freedom Hall, the location of his first professional fight in Louisville, to recognize... A man who taught us how to be free. Usually Muslim funeral services are small affairs, just family and very close friends. But Muhammad Ali in true Ali fashion opened up the doors and 14,000 people showed up to say their goodbyes. And it was really quite stunning to me standing there waiting to speak one of one of three speakers and looking at the front row of this funeral prayer it was it was the who's who celebrities heads of state president erdogan was in the front um louis farrakhan and others and yet the three people asked to give remarks were three ordinary people it was truly a testimony to his character Then we just hung out and soaked in the atmosphere for several hours. I mean, 100,000 people had lined the streets of Louisville. When I woke up this morning, I was nervous because goodbyes are always very difficult. And even though Muhammad Ali has not been the Muhammad Ali 
that so many of us love for so many years, just the idea that we live on a planet without Muhammad Ali is very difficult to sort of take in. It's very difficult to accept. It's very difficult to shoulder. Yeah, we are one block away from Muhammad Ali Boulevard on 4th and Broadway in Louisville, right in front of the historic Brown Hotel, the site of some of the most famous civil rights battles in Louisville's history. We're standing here with several hundred thousand of our closest friends, people from all over the world, people of all shades of the rainbow, to say goodbye to the champ, Muhammad Ali. And this is why I say that this funeral the fact that he chose and his family chose to go so public with this funeral and so central with his Islamic faith as part of his funeral is really his last act of resistance. I mean, living in a country with so much anti-Islamic bigotry where Donald Trump is effectively running for president on that question, it really is an incredible testament to this person was and the kind of ideals he held. It's a very intense experience to say goodbye to somebody who has had such an impact on not just my life, but the life of so many people and the fact that we're all gathered together to say goodbye. I'm thrilled that I came. I, I, the bigger issue is I can't imagine how I would have felt if I hadn't. There was no shortage of folks to talk to, people who'd come from halfway around the world and people who'd just come from their neighborhoods to say goodbye to the champ. My name is uh, Jim Embry. I live in Kentucky. As an activist... It was important for me to see athletes stepping out and not just saying, well, I'm an athlete, those things don't concern me, or I shouldn't say anything. And of course, he didn't do that. And, and, and we wanted so many other folks to stand up on my campus. We were raising help, it was a university, but the athletes wouldn't stand up with us to protest these things. And we would say, look at what Ali has done. He's given up, okay, his title, risk going to jail. So as I had children, I would tell them the story of Ali, okay, that doesn't require being a man and be in the military and have a gun. You can be a man, you can stand on principle, you can be courageous, you can be brave, and the work you have to do in this country, in this world. So he helped me raise, you know, five boys. And then the procession began, and everybody had their phones up. It was like this massive ad for iPhones and Androids. And I kept my phone down because I believe in the philosophy of Tom Morello, who says sometimes you got to put your phone down and just live in the moment. I never got the chance to watch Muhammad Ali. I never got the chance to chant his name. And so I got to do it. It was thousands of us chanting Ali as the processional went by. And just to have that experience is something I'll never forget. But you got to live in the moment sometimes. And just Lee, Ali, 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 and you know, the spirit of Ali wasn't just found on the people lining the streets. It was a hell of a sight to see Will Smith, who famously played Muhammad Ali in the 2001 film, hanging out of one of the cars in the processionals, mugging at everybody, giving high fives to everybody. Will Smith. 
And what's so great about this is that Will Smith is a notoriously private person and you could tell he was channeling Muhammad Ali. I felt that when he was hanging out of the car, giving people high fives, and it was confirmed for me that night on the 11 o'clock news when Will Smith was interviewed. And he had a great story to tell. He said, in 2001, when we were filming Ali, Muhammad took me by the arm and said, we got to ride the public bus. And I said, no, I don't want to be mobbed by fans. And, and Muhammad looked at me and he said, sometimes you got to let them touch you so they know you're real. On this day, Will Smith was as real as the folks from Louisville who were throwing hand-picked flowers on the front of Muhammad Ali's last ride. And then all we had to do was walk around with a microphone and people from Louisville and beyond came up to us to tell their story and why they were paying tribute to the champ. All right, my name is Dedrick Rashad Huff. I'm a Louisville, Kentucky native. You know what I'm saying? I came out for Ali, Muhammad Ali, the greatest man. Um, he really inspired my life, my whole city. You know, I'm coming from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's really, it's known that it's really hard to make it out. You know, really people got the old uh, slave mentality. You know what I'm saying? So... I just feel like Muhammad Ali set an example for a lot of people, man, trying to make it out the city, man. Uh, he set an example. Uh, he's the greatest in the world, man. And uh, just coming from Louisville, Kentucky, man, it just gave me hope and it gave me dreams. You know what I'm saying? It just gave me ambition just to make it out. You know what I'm saying? I've been my whole life. Muhammad Ali, man, I love you, man. And I, you, you, you'll go down as the greatest man in the world, ever walk the world, man. So you sleep easy, my brother. All right. Are you from Louisville? No, we're actually from Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, where he had his training camp from the 60s through the 80s. Everybody and their mother has posted up photos and stories about meeting him. My grandfather actually had an autograph signed photo and stuff like that. Some of these other guys could probably tell you more about it than I could. I'm I have obviously am much too young, even though at the end, 53. <laughs> uh, my name is Mike Titus, uh, born and raised here. What they're doing for him today, is words can't describe it. You know, it's sad because, you know, it took a passing to get everybody together like this. You walk the streets, you don't hear no arguing, you don't hear no fussing, no fighting. The traffic jams, you don't hear nobody hollering at each other. It's, it's just all love. It's all love. And it is remarkable. It is remarkable. This man has done so much for humanitarian work. He go in places that the average person wouldn't want to go. The man knew where he was going. He knew where he was going. He knew it. He said that if there is a heaven, he wants to see it. And he's going to see it. I don't care if you're Catholic, Baptist, whatever. God is God. God is God. And, and he had God all through him. He had God all through him. Then we walked from Broadway to the KFC Yum Center. And yes, it was a little bit surreal uh, for Muhammad Ali's last send-off. 22,000 people packed the place. The tickets were free. It had been planned for years by Muhammad Ali himself. And some of the speakers just not only brought the house down, but made history. And we want to play some of the clips for you. Let's start with the words of Muhammad Ali's widow, the person who was married to him for three decades, Yolanda Ali. Some years ago, during his long struggle with Parkinson's in a meeting that included his closest advisors, Muhammad indicated that when the end came for him, when his, he wanted us to use his life and his death as a teaching moment for young people, 
for his country, and for the world. In effect, he wanted us to remind people who were suffering that he had seen the face of injustice, that he grew up in a segregation, and that during his early life, he was not free to be who he wanted to be. But he never became embittered enough to quit or to engage in violence. It was a time. This was an interfaith service. Iman spoke, Native American religious leaders spoke, preachers, bishops, priests, the Shoshone, the people of the Longhouse, and actually the translator of the Native American religious service was Chief Orrin Lyons, who actually was the goalie on the Syracuse lacrosse team for a man who is sitting right there in the front row, Jim Brown. And two rabbis, one of those rabbis, Michael Lerner, spoke less about religion and more channeled the political spirit of Muhammad Ali, the spirit of telling uncomfortable truths. So I want to say, how do we honor Muhammad Ali? And the answer is the way to honor Muhammad Ali is to be Muhammad Ali today. That means us, everyone here and everyone listening. It's up to us to continue that ability to speak truth to power. We must speak out, refuse to follow the path of conformity to the rules of the game in life. We must refuse to follow the path of conformity. Tell the 1% who own 80% of the wealth of this country that it's time to share that wealth. Tell the politicians who use violence worldwide and then preach nonviolence to the oppressed, that it's time for them to end their drone warfare and every other form of warfare, to close our bases around the world, to bring the troops home, tell those who created mass incarceration that it's time to create a guaranteed income for everyone in our society. Tell judges to let out of prison the many African-Americans swept up by by racist police and imprisoned by racist judges. Many of them in prison today for offenses like possessing marijuana that white people get away with all the time. Tell our elected officials to imprison those who authorized torture and those who ran the big banks and investment companies that caused the economic collapse of 2008. Tell the leaders of Turkey to stop killing the the Kurds. Tell Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu that the way to get security is for Israel is to stop the occupation of the West Bank and help create a Palestinian state. And a speaker who's certainly not my cup of tea, but whose presence was honestly very powerful, was senior Republican Senator Orrin Hatch. I mean, think about it for a second. Orrin Hatch, first of all, he Muhammad Ali wanted him there. They'd been friends for 30 years. Orrin Hatch was a former boxer. But there's something about the senior Republican senator showing up to this funeral in the age of Trump that tragically seemed almost rebellious. Ali didn't look at life through the binary lens of Republican-Democrat, so common today. He saw worthy causes 
and shared humanity. In Ollie's willingness to put principles ahead of partisanship, he showed us all the path to greatness. And I'll never forget that greatness. Nor will I ever forget him. But the speaker who I want to end on is Ambassador Atala Shabazz, Malcolm X's daughter. I really want to encourage people to find this speech and listen to it in its entirety. I want to encourage people to find the transcript and read it. Because what Atala Shabazz did was she helped us understand history. One moment that historians have pondered over is the split between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Entire books have been written about this dynamic. And here is Atala Shabazz speaking publicly, really for the first time, about her decades-long friendship with Muhammad Ali, about how, in effect, he became another father to her after the passing of Malcolm. This moment is very meaningful for me to have been amongst those chosen and blessed by Muhammad himself and affirmed by his wife, Lonnie, to take part by sharing a prose statement during this homegoing ceremony. While he and I had a treasured relationship, the genesis of this love was through the love for my father. Muhammad Ali was the last of a fraternity of amazing men bequeathed to me directly by my dad. Somewhere between me turning 18, 19, or 20, they all seemed to find me somehow guided by an oath or a promise to my dad long after him leaving this earth to search for me. And they did, each one remaining in my life until joining the rest of the heaven's beloved summit of fearless humanitarians. This included Muhammad Ali, whom my dad loved as a little brother, 16 years his junior, and his entrusted friend. There was a double take when I came upon him, a once childhood first child, and now looking right into his face. And you know how he is. You know, he gives you that little dare, like, is that you? From the very moment we found one another, it was as if no time had passed at all, despite all of the presumptions of division, despite all the efforts at separation, despite all of the organized distancing. We dove right into all of the unrequited, yet stated, and duly acknowledged spaces we could explore and uncover privately. We cried out loud. His belt, his grief for having not spoken to my dad before he left. And then just as loudly we'd laugh about the best of stories and some that can't be repeated. He was really funny. I'm moved just just hearing that. Now, during the day, I was doing some commentary for MSNBC, and walking around the media center was also an experience unto itself. At one point on the ESPN panel, 10 feet from us, were two former guests of this podcast, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Dr. Harry Edwards, and then a guy who I just happened to be writing a book about, Jim Brown, and this incredible collection of people was being questioned by Jeremy Schapp, Hannah Storm, and the person who you're going to hear from right now, Howard Bryant. Well, considering that I never got a chance to meet Muhammad Ali, this is, this is the 
the best case scenario to be part of this, to see the institutional memory, to see it in action, to see the number of people that he touched. And I think the thing that I really like about this is its simplicity. This is not a celebrity event. You don't need tickets to this event. It doesn't cost any money to be here. What you see is exactly what Muhammad Ali was in real life. He was the people's champion. He was part of the community, no matter how far away from it he got. He never got far away from it, no matter what he accomplished, no matter how high he, he ascended. He was always one of us. And to the community in Louisville, one of them. He was one of theirs. And we talk about these things so often, and they don't match up in real life. This is authentic. This is real. If you care about the 20th century, especially if you care about the 20th century black athlete, you certainly want to see this. But I think what it means more, I mean, what means more to me about all of it is the fact that, that everything that you thought about Muhammad Ali is embodied in this one afternoon. Now, you've made a hell of a career for yourself by really exploring this kind of intersection of sports history and political history. How much of your, you know, this is like the butterfly test. Like, how much of the fact that Muhammad Ali flapped those wings has anything to do with the fact that you do this for a living? It's 100%. It's 100% because this is one thing that if you're not the target, you don't understand it. If you're not the person in the bullseye, you don't get it, and you'll never get it. And that is, is that when you are on the bottom, or when you believe you are on the bottom, you need somebody to remind you or someone to prove to you that you're not on the bottom, that you do have value, that there's something about you that is special and that things can be done. And with the African-American athlete, with the African-American citizen, no matter how much you may believe in yourself, you need to see it. You need proof that you can succeed. He was that proof. He provided that proof. He provided proof in so many ways that had nothing to do with athletics. And it's driving me crazy how mismanaged so much of this narrative has been. When people talk about, oh, well, you know, Muhammad Ali is great because he stood up for what he believed in. No, that's not it. There are a lot of people who stand their ground. There are a lot of people who are unwavering in their beliefs. What makes him different is that he stood for what he stood for without wavering, and he stood for poor people. He stood for underdogs. He stood for peace. He stood against power. He stood for all of those things that our culture tells you you have to run away from if you want to be successful. You have to run toward money. He ran away from money, and he was still rich. He lived the authentic life that everyone says they want, but don't really do a whole lot to attain. Everything that I feel like I've had an opportunity to accomplish, if you want to know where that comes from, go back to him. You don't have to go to me. Go to him and go look at him because at no point in my life did I ever risk what he risked. At no point. Now, after the services, we hooked up with Howard Bryant, and the plan was to go see the film The Trials of Muhammad Ali that was being put on by a good friend of us here at Edge of Sports, Bill Siegel. And yet, we didn't make it to the screening because we were magnetized by 3302 Grand Avenue in Louisville, Muhammad Ali's boyhood home. And what we found was that we were not alone. Muhammad Ali's house was being 
overwhelmed by well-wishers. So there we were at 3302 Grand Avenue at Muhammad Ali's house, which is being converted into a museum. People were leaving cards. People were posing with boxing gloves. And people were bringing their children to show the younger generation just where Muhammad Ali came from. Uh, for the most part, I just want them to see um, an example of someone who was a, a hero of our time. Um, just like you know, going through school, I learned about certain people who I never lived during their time who were very important to my parents. And I want to share the same with my, uh, with my kids. What's your name, sir? Uh, Julius Denson. What do you think of what you've seen here today? Um, it's kind of sticky. <laughs> He's not lying. <laughs> what do you think about what you've seen here today? Really good. Really good? Why? More than the other parts of it. What do you know about Ali, Julius? That he's black. He was the greatest uh, boxer of all time. And he's the hero of Louisville. And that that's all. That's great. You know a lot. Are you proud of him? Yes. Are you guys from Louisville too? No, we're actually from Florida. We drove up? Drove all the way from Florida. There are folks all around here. People are taking pictures of his house, which has recently been refurbished. Uh, they're turning it into a museum. It's Pink House. It's like that John Cougar Mellencamp song, Little Pink Houses for You and Me. Look at that. I uh, think that's something. And you've got uh, balloons. I saw a flag from the Congo, a.k.a. Zaire. It said Ali Boumaye, Rumble in the Jungle. Uh, there are American flags as well. There are homemade cards. There, there's all kinds of my goodness, a copy of the final call. I mean, it really is beautiful. What you got here? Everybody. This guy did it right here. Awesome. Meeting a dude who's got. I didn't know he was there. David Beckham was there? Get out of here. David Beckham. You had a good seat, man. Common was there, yeah. I knew Common was there. I did know Common was there. Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, man. Whoopi was there. That was well done. I'm not surprised Common was there. Chappelle was there. David Chappelle. I, I was so moved by so much of the memorial. I think the presence of Malcolm X's daughter was utterly historic. Speaking at Muhammad Ali's funeral, that'll never be forgotten. That needs to be studied in classes. Um, I think that a lot of what Bill Clinton said was a real problem. I wasn't happy with it beforehand and I wasn't happy with it after. It was like, it was like going to a movie that you didn't want to see and then having your worst fears realized. But that's a very small part of today. The speakers were beautiful. Lani Ali, I thought, hit the nail on the head. Like really, where she said the rich and powerful were attracted to Ali, but he was most attracted to the poor and downtrodden. That's the Ali, I think, a lot of us need to aspire towards, and that's what I'm never going to forget. We ended the night at a hotel bar with Howard Bryan experiencing Louisville's finest bourbons, although Howard is a tequila man. Thank you, Howard, for the company and conversation. And then we went to sleep to get the four hours everyone needs so we could wake up and catch our morning flight back home. So we were still reeling from what we had just seen. It was such an incredible explosion of love and affection and resistance. And as we're still processing all of this, 
Orlando happens. And that's where we get to where we are right now in the show. I want to give some choice words about what took place in Orlando and the lessons of Muhammad Ali's funeral and why they're so important given the world that we're living in right now, a post-Orlando world. To hear about the remorseless killing of predominantly Latino LGBT people during Pride Month is shattering enough. To then see Donald Trump and a collection of the worst anti-gay bigots be boastful, almost gleeful about it because the shooter was Muslim is all the worse. Muhammad Ali, as eulogist Billy Crystal said, truly believed in building bridges. These bridges are fragile and that's what makes them matter. It's so much easier to just burn them down. That is exactly what one shooter aimed to do. And now in death, he is being assisted by an entire right-wing apparatus which despises bridges about as much as it detests irony. Never mind that by all accounts, we know that the shooter, whose name I will not speak, was an American citizen. Never mind that he bought the automatic weapons legally or was a violent misogynist. The fact is that powerful people are demanding their villain of choice. It's also awful, and yet I can think of no better response to this cavalcade of hate than the message of Muhammad Ali's funeral. The entire interfaith service was a testament and act of resistance against anti-Islamic bigotry, bringing together all faiths to honor the most famous Muslim on the face of the earth. At the painstakingly constructed service, as she said goodbye to her husband of 30 years, I want to read what Yolanda Ali said. She, we already played a clip of her speech, but this is the part I think is so important after Orlando. She said, it was my husband's religion that caused him to turn away from war and violence. For his religion, he was prepared to sacrifice all he had and all that he was to protect his soul. So even in death, Muhammad has something to say. He's saying that his faith required that he take the more difficult road. It is far more difficult to sacrifice oneself in the name of peace than to take up arms in pursuit of violence. Lani Ali also said the following, and it is sending a chill down my spine to even read these words. She said, you know, as I reflect on the life of my husband, it's easy to see his most obvious talent. His majesty in the ring as he danced under those lights enshrined him as a champion for the ages. Less obvious was his extraordinary sense of timing. His knack for being in the right place at the right time seemed to be ordained by a higher power. Look, we need desperately, whether you believe in a higher power or not, to recognize the timing of Muhammad Ali's passing, crossing the same weekend as the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. We need to use his death, as he would have wanted us to do, to promote an alternate vision to the competing fundamentalisms that want to turn our world into two warring camps. Camps that, by the way, hold a common agreement of seeing the LGBT community as something to demonize, oppress, and when opportunity strikes, kill. We need the memory and voice of Muhammad Ali now more than ever. We need to remember the person who understood the importance of using his own funeral as a last act of resistance. We need the example of someone who said, in war, the intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. That war has come home, not just in Orlando, but amidst the lives of innocent families across the Middle East. We need, above all else, the example of someone who put it all on the line to resist this mindless violence, because that will be our task in the very immediate future. 
God is watching me. God is God don't praise me because I beat Joe Frazier. God don't give nothing about Joe Frazier. God don't care nothing about England or America as far as your wealth is all his. He wants to know how do we treat each other? How do we help each other? So I'm gonna dedicate my life to using my name and popularity, helping charities, helping people, uniting people, bring people bumming each other because of religious beliefs. We need somebody in the world to help make peace. So when I die, if there's a heaven, I want to see it. Muhammad Ali, man, I love you, man. And I, you, you, you go down as the greatest man in the world, ever walked the world, man. So you sleep easy, my brother. All right. So that's all we have for today. We really want to thank everybody at The Nation Magazine and Panoply for sending us to Louisville. We want to thank the Ali Center for their amazing work in constructing this service and inviting the world to come on in and be a part of it. People should go to the Ali Center website, which will be in the description of this podcast at edgeofsportspodcast.com if they want to learn more, want to learn how to donate to the Ali Center and help the amazing work that they do. We want to thank everybody in Louisville for being such incredible hosts to us. But above all else, we want to thank you who's been with us on this journey. And it's not over yet. We have more Ali interviews later this week, talking to Bill Siegel, the director of the Trials of Muhammad Ali and cultural critic Bijan Bain. That'll be out later this week. It'll be up at edgeofsportspodcast.com, or you can subscribe for free to the podcast and it'll show right up in your listening device. If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can do so at Edge of Sports or through Edge of Sports at Slate.com. Go to edgeofsportspodcast.com to catch all of our previous shows that we've done recently about Muhammad Ali. I'm so incredibly proud of this work. I feel like we've captured something very special. I really do appreciate all the feedback I've gotten and how much people are loving the show. And hey, if you love the show, take a second to rate it on iTunes or Stitcher or your app of choice. Make little comments. All of that actually makes a big, big difference. So to everybody out there, we are out of here. Love to the champ. Peace. Peace.